Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I have with me today the illustrious Dr. Jochen Stepan, who is one of our cardiac anesthesiologists. He's an assistant professor of cardiac anesthesiology here at Johns Hopkins and is really an expert on pulmonary hypertension. He does a lot of work uh, both clinically and uh, in the research arena with pulmonary hypertension and so we are going to talk about that today. Jochen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad being here. All right, so let's start very basic. Um, when we say pulmonary hypertension, what do we mean? What is that referring to? What is pulmonary hypertension? So pulmonary hypertension basically is a disease of the pulmonary vasculature. Um, and the origin is not quite known. There's a couple of different theories what is what lies underneath it. But basically what we do know is that it involves um, a state of inflammation as well as metabolic causes that can explain most of the features but there's also underlying endothelial dysfunction, smooth muscle hypochondriality. There's certainly impaired vasodilation, which is one of the hallmarks of the disease, as well as extracellular remodeling. It really has been um, defined by the uh, World Symposium for Hypertension a couple of years back by a mean pulmonary artery pressure that's higher than 25 millimeters of mercury at rest. They did get um, rid of the definition that included exercise um, um, values on it, so it's just an addressed value that is um, obtained at a right heart catheter, even though we oftentimes use, for instance, um, right ventricular systolic pressure um, as a surrogate, but it's, it's truly a mean pressure um, by a right heart catheter. And then you can certainly um, subclassify it further if you're looking at clinical definition, like class 1 pulmonary hypertension, which is, mean, uh, which is pulmonary arterial hypertension, class 2 pulmonary hypertension, which is due to um, left heart disease, class 3, which is due to either intrinsic pulmonary disease or hypoxia. And then class four, which is due to chronic thromboembolic disease. And lastly, the multifactorial causes, which is class five. Okay, so clinically, so you're saying that to actually have the diagnosis, you need to have a right heart cath officially. Officially. But as you said, clinically, patients often have an echo that measures a right ventricular systolic pressure, and they kind of get the diagnosis, or at least we refer to them as having pulmonary hypertension that way. Is there a cutoff of a right ventricular systolic pressure that you think of as sort of equivalent to uh, a right heart cath diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension? Well, you, certainly if you do it with a right ventricular systolic pressure, you have to make certain assumptions. You have to assume that there's no problem with the pulmonic valve, and you need to assume that you know the central venous pressure. Because um, the right ventricular systolic pressure, basically it's um, determined by the difference between the atrial and the ventricular pressure according to tricuspid 
transmit regurgitation jet. So the only pressure difference between those two. So you need all the other variables. Um, and then, of course, as you mentioned, most importantly, it's a systolic pressure, not a mean pressure. So there's a couple of different formulas you can use. Like roughly, you can say it's about two-thirds dm systolic pressure. I mean, that kind of gives you a good ballpark number. So you'd expect like a RVSP starting at like 38 to 40, depending on your definition, to get in a ballpark of a mean pressure of um, 25. Okay, so uh, an R RVSP, uh, about 38 to 40. And then is there, uh, sometimes you hear people say, oh, they have, you know, mild or medium or severe pulmonary hypertension. Is that, are those real categories? And if so, what are the cutoffs for those? They're interestingly enough, they're, they're used quite um, ubiquitously, but they're not real categories. There's no good um, definition about mild, moderate, or severe. The definition only involves pulmonary hypertension, yes or no. And then um, the subclassification according to pulmonary pressure is actually not a, not a real thing, even though we read it um, quite frequently. But all the um, um, official um, definitions do not include them. So they go more by um, patient symptoms. Um, for instance, there's a classification that's fairly close to the New York Heart Association um, classification for heart failure, where you can define them into four classes, from no symptoms to mild, moderate, to symptoms at rest. And that's much more predictive of the outcome than the pain polarity pressure. Because if you think about it, it really depends on where you are in your treatment. If you have a patient who might have severe pulmonary hypertension, but it's treated um, and the mean pulmonary pressure came down, they certainly still have severe pulmonary hypertension, even though the pressures might be low. Similarly, if you have a patient who is even worse off and have right heart failure and is not able to mount high pulmonary pressure, they are certainly having severe pulmonary hypertension, but they would be underclassified if you just go by gradients. Right, and I think that's a really key point, right? So the um, if your right heart is failing, you can't actually push against that pressure. You're not going to have. You're going to generate high pressures in the right heart. And that's so correct. you may have a low RVSP even though you have severe pulmonary hypertension. That is correct, yes. Okay. So what kind of symptoms, when you say like symptoms are more helpful, um, I assume we're talking about things like shortness of breath. Correct. They're, they're fairly unspecific, which can make it, especially initial diagnosis, a little bit challenging. Um, but patients oftentimes present with, uh, with dyspnea or just um, overall decreased exercise um, tolerance, especially if they're um, kind of exerting themselves or exercising. Um, anything like... Um, for symptoms like hypoxia, people oftentimes think of, you really need an additional shunt um, um, component, which is not um, part of the definition by any, definition by any stretch. It's more the, the asymptomatic, uh, sorry, the um, unspecific symptoms. Okay. So putting aside that there aren't actual cutoffs of mild, moderate, and severe, in your mind, if you're getting ready to take a patient to the operating room uh, for a non-cardiac surgery, uh, and they have pulmonary hypertension, is there a, uh, so it sounds like so certainly you look at their symptoms, is there a number from an echo report that would make you more worried or less worried? Uh, you know, do you have any, any kind of cutoff like that in mind? I've heard, for example, some people will say, uh, whether it's right or wrong, they'll say two-thirds systolic. If they're if their pulmonary, uh, if their pulmonary systolic pressure is two-thirds their, their uh, systemic systolic pressure, that, that that starts to get more worrisome. Right. Um, that's actually a definition we quite oftentimes use in the pediatric population where we go more um, by relative numbers to their systemic values. They are more than half when you start getting concerned, more than two-thirds is when you start getting really concerned. And once you're having systemic pressures, you're, um, well, just not sure how much you can escalate concern at that point. Right. Um, but that definition is used less than the, uh, in, or that um, classification is used less than the adults. Um, I'm, because of what I told you earlier about the uh, treatment efforts and state in the therapy, I'm really hard-pressed to give you kind of an 
exact number. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the higher the number, uh, the higher the peer pressures, the more um, concerned I am. Um, and uh, certainly, once it starts um, approaching systemic values, but I'm a little bit. Um, gun shy of giving an exact number. Say, okay, for instance, oftentimes you hear peer pressure of like fifty or anything like that. It's again, it's. I think a, just a single number is not um, adequate to describe the whole um, state of the patient. Okay, let me go back a sec to when you mentioned that there were um, various causes of pulmonary hypertension. It could be, uh, you know, from um, chronic thromboembolism, it could be from a variety of different uh, causes, and those are are kind of different uh, stages of disease uh, or different classifications of disease. Does it matter when you are going to take a patient to the operating room in for that for your OR preparation? Does it matter what the etiology of the pulmonary hypertension is? It, it certainly does matter because depending on what the etiology is, um, the treatment might be very different. Because if it's, for instance, secondary to left heart disease or to intrinsic pulmonary disease or thrombotic disease, you can you have an underlying cause that you can treat. I'm not saying you can't treat it easily, but it's it's. Um, it's a little bit more obvious oftentimes how you can manage those patients and optimize them preoperatively. So that certainly helps um, depending on what medication you put them on. It also um, gives you a little bit of an, an idea of how they would react in the operating room. Um, class 1, which is pulmonary arterial hypertension, is oftentimes considered as the um, um, worst of the of the lot because the prognosis is, is certainly worse than with the other ones. And um, they are much more prone to having um, pulmonary hypertensive crisis, which is a sudden increase in pulmonary vascular resistance that then results into um, worsening or RV strain and worsening RV function. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in terms of your preparation, it's really good to know the underlying cause. All right, so um, let's say you're you know you're going to have a patient uh, who has pulmonary hypertension, uh, and you're going to take them to the operating room again. Let's say for non cardiac surgery. Okay. What pre op testing do you want to see on these patients? So there's a couple of things I want to see. Of course, um, you can skip any of your regular um, HMP. Um, I, l- I put a lot of credence into exercise tolerance. I go into a lot of details, like how they can exert themselves when they get short of breath, um, those kind of subjective um, feeling to get an idea on the patient. Um, you can objectify it a little bit better if you have a six-minute walk test, which um, once a patient has um, pulmonary hypertension is involved or kind of taken care of in a specialized clinic, um, the vast majority of them will have a six-minute six walk test, which gives you an idea um, how much um, their excess capacity is on an objective base. Um, certainly, an echo is very helpful. Uh, it will not only give you mean pulmonary artery pressure, which kind of gives you an idea on the severity, and we talked about um, how you could gauge that, but it also helps you to see if there's any other underlying problems, especially if you have left heart disease um, or any valvular problems. And then lastly, what I look um, very specifically for is for right ventricular function. If the right ventricle is able to compensate even with higher pulmonary pressures, that's a little bit more reassuring than if you already start seeing right ventricular strain or right ventricular failure. Um, as I mentioned earlier, of course, if you want to have the official diagnosis and if the patient is severe um, or at least uh, worked up very well, they would have a right heart catheter, which is very helpful, especially if they were do if they did a vasodilatory test to see if there's any benefit of using um, vasodilators, um, pulmonary specific vasodilators in those patients. Great. And when they do that right heart cast, are you saying they they would actually? Maybe uh, try, let's say, some nitric or something in during the cath and see if the if the pressure is decreased. 
Right, and that will, will help then to start um, them on pulmonary-specific vasodilators like inhaled, uh, sorry, not like um, prostacyclines, prostaglandins, or um, endothelial receptor antagonists. Right, and so since since that came up, let's talk about that for a minute. So, so some of these people with really severe uh, pulmonary hypertension will walk around with Flolan, uh, like a Flolan pump, right, right, that they'll be on. Um, and that's a whole other issue in and of itself because uh, there are perioperative issues with those, right, in terms of managing them. Correct. And the most important thing on those um, intravenous medications that they need to be continued throughout. So they're going to go through dedicated line um, and the pump needs to be um, going continuously. Depending on which medication they're taking, it could have a very short half-life, which might be in the order of a couple of minutes. So interruption of that um, line, um, especially if it happens inadvertently during a couple of hour operation, um, could precipitate a pulmonary hypertensive crisis and without anybody knowing what the, what the reason for that is. Um, so we were paying very close attention to um, having those pumps and making sure they continue throughout the operation in a preparative period. And you would also obviously need to know you had enough of the flow land itself exactly, so that yeah. it didn't run out. Absolutely. What uh, You mentioned a pulmonary hypertensive crisis as something that could result either from someone who had a, a severe exacerbation intraoperatively of their pulmonary hypertension or, for example, their flow land ran out or was interrupted. And you said that. Uh, is an immediate increase or a sudden increase in pulmonary pressure with associated right heart strain or right heart failure or worsening right heart function. Are there uh, other things that people should know? Kind of what does that look like? What should they be looking out for? Uh, if if is there a kind of are there early warning signs of of this intraoperatively? So it depends on what monitors you have, of course. Um, how you, what you can see initially. Well, um, what what basically happens is that you have a sudden increase or a very um, dramatic increase in pulmonary vascular resistance that then um, puts strain on the right heart, the um, afterload of the right heart increases by definition, the stroke volume of the right ventricle will decrease, the stroke volume for the right ventricle decreases, the preload for the left ventricle decreases, blood pressure decreases, which cl- which um, includes the uh, coronary perfusion pressure. On a, on a, when a both left and right ventricle are strained, you start to see some ischemia, especially of the right heart, which then it kind of spirals down the right, right ventricle, like stroke volume goes further down and so forth. So it can be sometimes very um, difficult to get that patient out of that situation, especially um, if it if it's um, if it occurred for a while without having been recognized. Um, so what you first what you see is again as I, as I alluded to earlier, is depending what monitors you have. If you have a PA catheter in place, you might see an increase in PA pressures right away. If you have an echo in, pl- in place, you might see um, str- struggling on right ventricular function. If you have a CVP line in place, you might see an increase in central venous pressure. If you have none of those, all you will see at this point is just a decrease in blood pressure, and then it's going to be a little bit more difficult to figure out um, what the reason for that um, sudden hypotension is going to be. Okay. So uh, I want to get back to monitors. Let me just ask you, since we're talking about medications, so severe uh, patients with truly severe uh, disease may walk around with flow land pumps, as we said. Uh, where does sildenafil fit in there? Certainly, we see some people on sildenafil for this. Is that uh, kind of people with less severe disease? I don't think you can necessarily say it's with less severe disease. They usually have PO medications before they have IV medications in the um, good amount of patients who are on IV um, prostacyclins um, might be on sildenafil um, beforehand or might even be on both. Um, if they are on sildenafil, it's going to be the same as for the um, intravenous medications, um, continuation of the medication, not stopping in the morning of surgery, but actually continue to give them. Sometimes we, even if it's a long operation, we actually crush the pills and put them down in OG tube so that they don't miss um, doses, even if they're NPO afterwards. Okay, that's a really important point. Um, now, 
are there patients? Let's say you had a patient who was on sildenafil or uh, prostacyclin or both, and you were taking them to the operating room. Would you ever consider putting them on nitric oxide, or would you? Was it preferential to just keep them on what they're on? So I would definitely keep them on um, what they're on. Um, there's certain concern that some of the um, some of the IV medications can lead to um, coagulopathy, but it's usually minor, and we haven't really seen a big problem with that. And that's sometimes why people switch them to inhaled, um, for instance, nitric oxide through the case. We tend to we tend not to do that here. We usually keep them on all the um, IV and PO medications, and use the inhaled medication really as an added um, as an added medication that we can. Um, Almost like a rescue medication. Yeah, I think a rescue medication is a good way to put it, because um, you, you, you tend to see a beneficial and additional effect with the medication on top of the already um, IV medication. Okay, and so just to review, uh, the idea of an inhaled uh, vasodilator like nitric oxide or um, inhaled prostacyclin is that you deliver the medication to the alveoli that are well ventilated so you then vasodilate the vessels that are in close proximity to those well ventilated alveoli and so you ideally match perfusion and ventilation and increase your oxygenation is that right yeah that's a very uh, good way to uh, to put it the other advantage is if you're in administer the drug um, in an inhaled route is that you have very little systemic side effects because a lot of the um, inhaled nitric oxide gets it's very short half-life and it gets scavenged basically by hemoglobin before it leaves the lung circulation. Okay, so you can get your effect you're looking for, which is improved oxygenation without really any systemic hypotension or uh, systemic vasodilation from, from the inhaled. Now, the people who are on IV... Uh, prostacycline, do they get uh, vasodilatory systemic effects from this? Do they come in? Are they more likely, for example, to uh, get hypotensive during induction? If you're, if you're on already an, in, um, an IV vasodilator, um, there is a it depends on. I think it depends on your, on your volume status. If your volume status on the vasodilator is euvolemic, um, I don't think your chances are much higher than without it. Um, I'm trying to recall um, if I, but I don't. I don't really think that I that those patients are particularly prone to X to hypotension with an additional vasodilator than a regular or a non a patient who's not on that medication. Okay, so we talked about uh, prostacyclines, both inhaled and IV. We talked about sildenafil. Are there any other medications these patients are commonly on that we should be aware of? Um, you, uh, the other cl- class of pa- medications is, is endothelin um, receptor antagonists, like bosantan, for instance, would be an example that patients can be on. They can be on um, on intranasal medications, but it's getting fairly rare to see any of those. And um, and then, um, they, of course, those are the specific medications. They're certainly on a little bit more unspecific medications. They can be on oxygen. They can be on calcium, cha- cha- calcium channel blockers, mm-hmm. diuretics, and um, anticoagulation. Um, all those medications would be very um, common in those patient cord. Great. All right. So now let's get back to monitors. You're taking one of these patients mm-hmm. to the operating room. You mentioned if they had a SWAN or a PA catheter, uh, then you could actually monitor their pressures in real time. Should they all have SWANs? How do you decide what monitors you want for these patients? So actually, the only minority of patients, I think, um, we could take the operating room with a PA catheter. Um, intuitively, it makes a lot of sense to have a PA catheter in those patients. You can say, okay, I'm, I'm getting a good um, estimate of their mean pulmonary pressure, their diastolic pressure. It's all in real time. Um, 
But surprisingly, um, it hasn't been shown that PA catheters have any survival benefits in large studies on, on those patients. It really depends on what your comfort level with the PA catheter is. If you use them on a, on a regular basis, you know those numbers and you know how to interpret them very quickly without thinking about it too much, um, it might be might be beneficial. Um, but the flip side is that patients with pulmonary hypertension are also at highest risk for pulmonary artery rupture with a PA catheter. So if we place them, we actually never wedge that catheter in order to put as little strain on the pulmonary vasculature as possible. But we, um, in all honesty, we tend to be very um, restrictive on pulmonary artery catheters in those patients, and only a minority of patients have it. We make it... Um, more dependent on a combination of the patient's physiology beyond the pulmonary hypertension plus the severity of the surgery. Um, if, if there's one monitor I wanted, I would rather have an A-line and a PA catheter if I can only choose one. Um, I also think that a CVP line is giving you a lot of information um, that a CVP catheter, sorry, that a PA catheter gives you. Um, that again, we have similar study situation with the CVP line and the PA catheter, it's also not a survival benefit if you look at it. And there's a and there's no direct correlation between the CVP and um, truly flu responsiveness, for instance. Um, but I think it gives you a good a good idea as a um, as an overall marker of um, of right heart function um, and volume status. We have to differentiate between those two and other um, indices. And, but if I, if there's a, if there's something that I would put in those patients to monitor their right heart, it would be a, a TE. Actually, um, I'm much more liberal about putting in a, a TE probe in those patients. It doesn't give me um, exactly what the PA catheter gives, but it gives me a lot of um, information. Um, pretty much everything except for mixed venous set I can get with a TE probe, and I could get so much more. Like I can get a direct visualization of the filling side of the right heart. I can get a direct visualization of the function of the right heart. Um, and changes in right ventricular contractility. I think this is much more useful than it is having just a single number or a slew of numbers um, that you make a diagnosis from. Okay, great. So let's drill down a little bit. Let's say you had, you said there was a small subset of these patients that will get swans, and that's based on the severity of their disease and the kind of severity or um, the uh, difficulty or um, extensiveness of the surgery itself? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. So can you give me an example of a, a patient and a surgery where you would place a swan? I'm, I'm really restricted with swans, so it's going to be probably a fairly drastic example. Um, it will probably be the patient that is um, dyspneic is at rest with um, right ventricular dysfunction that has, um, despite maximum therapy, still PA pressures are probably somewhere in the systemic range. And then I'm talking about like a major, maybe major abdominal surgery, but like a liver resection or anything like that. That would probably be the patient I would think about putting a, a PA catheter in. Um, but again, there's, yeah, there's no hard and fast rule for that. Okay. Probably all the patients with at least fairly severe disease should, as you said, get an A-line. Would you put these lines in when they're still awake? I usually tend to put them, the vast majority of A-lines in awake for those patients. Um, not that, as you know, the procedure is not without um, discomfort or um, complications, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a relatively minor procedure. Um, I usually put them in with lidocaine plus bicarbonate the lidocaine to decrease the um, sting for the patient from the local anesthetic. And um, I think it gives you a lot of um, guidance, especially during the um, induction phase, which is one of the um, most crucial phases of the case. 
Absolutely. And then how about uh, Central Venus line? You said, again, that's fairly useful. And, and I assume when you say it's a reasonably useful line, again, any as you said, any one number, any one CVP measurement isn't that useful. But if you're watching a trend during a case and you have a sudden increase in central venous pressure in a patient with a bad right heart or, or bad and or bad pulmonary hypertension, it's not the worst indicator of worsening right heart function. Is that how you kind of think about it? Yeah, I think that's, that's a very good way to think about it. I mean, um, it's there's not mer- there's not a lot of cases where we see a sudden increase in CVP during an operation, except for right ventricular function. There's a couple of more, of course, um, but especially if a patient with um, pulmonary hypertension, where you have a high um, pretest likelihood of that's the case, I think it's very helpful. And the other advantage that a CVP line gives you is it gives you the, uh, the option to administer certain medications, special inotropes or vasoconstrictive medications at high, higher doses than you would be able to do peripherally. Right. And so good. So, so most of these patients, at least with severe disease, you would put a central line in? Yeah, I would put a central line in A line and then plus minus a TE. Okay. Now, let's say that you uh, are intraop. What are the things you're worried about? What are you looking out for in these patients that you know isn't really a concern in a patient without pulmonary hypertension? One, obviously, that we already talked about would be a pulmonary hypertensive crisis. Are there other things that you kind of have in the back of your head that you need to look out for in these patients? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm just much more diligent of um, actively changing pulmonary vascular resistance in those patients. Um, oftentimes, we don't really think about pulmonary vascular resistance, um, and be, but especially in those patients with a right heart, right ventricle that is already um, on the precipice of, of strain or um, failing, um, decreasing actively decreasing pulmonary vascular resistance, I think is important. There's a couple of different levers that you can pull. Um, you can think about um, oxygenation. For instance, putting this, those patients on 100% oxygen um, is very beneficial to decrease PVR. You want to hyperventilate them a little bit to decrease their PCO2. And then independent of that, you also want to make sure that they're not acidotic. So I'm a little bit more aggressive with those patients of treating um, acidosis. Um, hypothermia is another one that decre- increases PVR. So um, keeping the operating room warm, keeping the patient warm. Again, those are things that we we normally do, but I'm just a little bit more meticulous in, in those patients. Um, similarly, with uh, mean pulmonary artery, uh, pulmonary airway pressures, um, that might be a patient when I might actually decrease the PEEP a little bit or try to give them a little uh, change the E to E. I to E ratio to decrease the mean pulmonary artery pressures. If I can do a case on a spontaneous ventilation, it might also be very helpful. Um, and then certain medications, of course, that you can give. We talked about INO earlier um, that you could have as a as a rescue medications. But just avoiding medications actually actively increasing pulmonary vascular resistance. For instance, phenylephrine is one of the medications we give quite frequently. Um, it's probably not very beneficial in those in this patient cohort. Right. So you mentioned that you want to uh, maybe avoid a high mean airway pressures. Is that because the higher the mean airway pressure, the more kind of added pressure on the vasculature and then increasing uh, pulmonary pressure even more, or is there another reason? Yeah, it's basically the afterload for the right ventricle. Um, if you have an increase... Um, if you have an overdistension of the airways, you increase the uh, pulmonary vascular resistance. And it, but similarly, if you have very little filling of them too, um, you do that too. So it's kind of a, a U-shaped curve right around the FRCs where you have your lowest um, resistance. Okay. So, uh, and you mentioned if you can have them spontaneously breathing, that's even better. All right. Now, you, you touched on medication. So let's say you do have a patient with pulmonary hypertension and they get hypotensive in the operating room. Now, probably common things being common, the most likely thing is the same 
thing that any patient would be hypotensive. They may be bleeding. They might be, you may have given them a little too much anesthetic, et cetera. But what are you thinking differently in these patients, and what medications would you use? You mentioned probably avoiding phenylephrine, which is probably the most common go-to uh, medication for uh, treating basic hypotension intraoperatively. So in these patients, what are you going to use? What are you thinking when they get hypotensive, and what are you going to use to treat it? Before I answer that, I just want to um, come back real quickly to the spontaneously breathing patient. Yeah. I think it's important um, to recognize that even if you do that under spontaneous ventilation, that you need to ensure adequate ventilation and don't have um, a patient who is sedate and then get hypercarbic. That's something that's we we like, oh, we just keep them spontaneously ventilating, everything will be fine. But it has to be adequate enough in order to avoid hypercarbia in those patients. That's a, f- a common trap oftentimes people fall into. Great. Um, but, so, but now go back to your, to your question. Um, it's important to avoid kind of our regular knee-jerk response because usually what we do, is, as you said, a patient gets hypotensive, we increase our fluids. Usually it's cold fluids. We give a big bolus. Um, and then if that doesn't help, we give some venlafurin on top of that. Um, that's probably the worst thing that you can do for a patient with pulmonary hypertension. Um, if you're giving them a, lot, a fluid bolus, you're going to increase the period of the right heart in a in a failing right ventricle that's not not very well tolerated. The, the RV really needs its geometrical shape um, very closely to baseline in the uvolemic state in order to have adequate um, contractility. So that's detrimental for the RV. Also, you're giving them a, a, a load of cold fluid to decrease the temperature, thereby increasing um, PVR again. And then if you give them um, phenylephrine with an, an alpha agonist, it's also present in the lung, you further increase PVR. Um, so I think the, the, the key thing to recognize, um, as we talked earlier a little bit about the um, kind of spiraling down and we get ischemia in the RV, is to maintain um, coronary perfusion in the RV. So I think one of the first drugs that I would probably give um, would be vasopressin. The advantage of vasopressin is that the V1 receptor is very ubiquitously um, throughout the body, with the exception of maybe of the brain and the pulmonary circulation. So what you do get if you give vasopressin, we can, and I want to make sure that um, to realize that we only need very low doses, like 0.2 units of vasopressin, maybe 0.4, um, is usually more than sufficient to increase uh, blood pressure. You don't need kind of very high dose, like a couple of units or anything like that. That's as a bolus. As point, a bolus point two, dose. Yeah. Yeah. If if you're really if you ha- if you're if you're really in a in a pinch, you need something like right away. I would say probably start with a bolus of 0.2 vaso. The advantage of that, it increases your SVR, um, ensures a little bit of coronary perfusion, and gets the RV out of that ischemic phase. In, the, in your next step, um, then you can go um, through the list that we did before on the pulmonary vascular resistance and try to lower, to actively lower pulmonary vascular resistance in those patients. And then oftentimes the right ventricle needs a little bit of inotropic support. Um, there's no perfect drug. Um, it makes intuitive sense to give a drug like milrinone, which um, doesn't do much about the pulmonary vascular resistance, even decrease a little bit, but supports the RV. The problem for us anesthesiologists is that milrinone intraoperatively is oftentimes not very well tolerated because the patients just get too hypotensive with it. Um, so I tend to give a little bit of um, I mean, a drug that has some inotropic effect. You can you can do you can give dopamine low dose. You can give a low dose of epinephrine. Um, there's no ideal medications at this point, but you need a little bit of contractile support for the right ventricle at that point. Great. Let me ask you when you when you are preparing vasopressin, or when you're asking your resident or fellow to prepare it, if you're going to give doses as a bolus of 0.2 or 0.4, how do you mix that up? How do you like it mixed up? Do you do uh, one unit in 10 cc's, which would give you you know, 0.1 units per ml, or how do you like to do it? I usually do 0.2 um, per cc. Um, our 
vasopressin vials comes in 20 units per vial, and we do that in a 100cc bag. That gives you 0.2 units per cc. Great. All right, so you put that 20 units in a 100cc bag of saline. Uh, great. Now, what about a vasopressin drip? Let's say you give a bolus, it works. Would you start this patient on a vasopressin drip? Yeah, I usually, I usually do. Um, Vasopressin um, drip, like the regular dose, like 0.02 um, units per minute, is usually a good way, to, a good one to start with. The bolus is, is really only if you kind of if you're in a pinch, you need to have something to happening right away, especially if you're worried about right ventricular ischemia. Uh, I don't think it's a long-term treatment to keep giving um, escalating doses of um, vasopressin because it's not a benign drug. Right. Okay. And then. When you think about milrinone as being kind of ideal in its, as you said, its ability to help the right heart without increasing right heart afterload, but the problem being systemic hypotension from the milrinone systemic vasodilation, do you ever combine milrinone with vasopressin to kind of get the, the benefits of both? Yeah, I think that's something that you can um, very easily do, especially if you start with the vasopressin drip, and you can add milrinone on top of it um, and see what the effects are. Um, if if you are able to increase the quantity of the right heart, you're going to see your blood pressure increase, um, and then it's, I think it's a very nice combination. Um, I oftentimes actually put patients on two or three drips and try to keep it, um, to have a drip for, for one specific reason, for instance, vasopressin just for the afterload, and then, for instance, um, dopamine just for low dose, just for chondroitality. So I can actually, um, depending on how situations change and, and what specific component I want to modify, I can just modify that one colon rather than putting somebody in epinephrine and then have to only have one certain dial to go up and down on. Absolutely. Let me ask you about heart rate and whether what role that plays. Do these patients do better tachycardic, bradycardic, or somewhere in between? Um, for those patients, it's somewhere in between. There's no. It's not like a patient with aortic stenosis who you want to kind of keep very slow, or somebody with mitral regurgitation who you want to keep a little bit on the on the faster side. Um, certainly, you don't want to have them so tachycardic that you increase your oxygen demand of the, from the right ventricle, or so bradycardic that you decrease your cardiac output. Um, but the lesion by itself doesn't require a specific heart rate, um, like rather low or rather high. Okay, great. Jochen, you mentioned that you wouldn't want to reflexively give a huge fluid bolus in response to hypotension. Um, and let me just ask you, what is the ideal volume status for these patients? So the ideal volume status on those patients is going to be euvolemic. Um, if I have the choice between hyper and hypovolemia, I take a little bit hypovolemia, to be honest with you, because we, especially intraoperatively, we tend to give a lot of fluids. Um, and you want to be very judicious about that. Um, one of the major goals for preoperative um, optimization is actually volume status and we spend quite a lot of time getting the diuretic volume just right so they really come to the operating room um, on the um, kind of mild hypovolemic side almost but certainly not volume overload which is very poorly tolerated in those patients. Great and then the other thing I wanted to ask you about is induction so you mentioned that the, these patients can get into this, you know, bad spiral where if they get hypotensive, they're not going to perfuse their heart. They're going to have worsening ischemia and worsening heart function and et cetera. And so uh, obviously induction of anesthesia is a time when patients often get hypotensive. Do you do anything prophylactically? Like do you start these patients on any sort of press or drip prior to induction or how do you handle induction in these patients? So it depends, again, on the severity of the patient. If I have a patient who has like severe heart failure with a low AF on the left side plus severe, severely compromised right ventricle, on top of that, they have pulmonary hypertension. I actually do start them on a low-dose dopamine drip before the induction, somewhere between 3 and 5 um, mics per kilo per minute. Um, 
but other than that i don't give um, that would be the pre-induction drip other than that um i have all my emergency medication obviously available there is like a a wide variety how you can induce um, anesthesia with those patients. You can go from a, like a fentanyl midazolam based approach, which is very well tolerated. Um, you can do propofol if you want to, if you use it in low doses judiciously and kind of counteract the vasodilatory effect. I'm not a big fan of propofol for those patients, but it's certainly, uh, it is doable if, if used judiciously. Some people like to do inhaled inductions, um, or at least augment their induction by an inhale technique, getting the patient deeply sedated or moderately sedated and then dial some inhaled um, vapor on there. My personal preference, um, I'm very partial to ketamine for those patients. I think it's a very um, underutilized drug um, nowadays. There is a concern with ketamine um, because it increases catecholamine release, which by itself can increase pulmonary vascular resistance, that that would be detrimental in those patients. However, what we found is that um, the catecholamine release or increase also supports the right ventricle and that usually overcomes any increases that you see in PVR. Um, usually as long as you maintain ventilation with those patients and they're not getting hypercarbic or hypoxic, um, there's no increase in PVR with ketamine. So it's actually very a drug that helps me getting this patient even severely compromised patients through induction um, very stably. Great. And about what dose do you give approximately? I usually start with about a half a milligram per kilogram as as a dose, and then um, I I add a little. It's it's a multimodal approach, so I just, it's usually a combination of a little bit of my DAS, a little bit of an opioid, most of the time fentanyl, and then ketamine, like 0.5 milligram per kilogram, um, and then depending on how things go, I might um, when they're getting deep enough before I start giving the paralytic, I might start a little bit of of, of vapor and static on top of that. Great. Is there one vapor ISO versus SIVO versus DES that's better or worse, or are they all equivalent? Well, depending. Um, if the patient is really deep, then it, it's, it probably not doesn't matter too much if you use ISO or SIVO. Um, I usually t- like to give SIVO just in case the patient is not as deep as we want it to be. I want to, of course, give the least pungent and best uh, best. Tolerated. Uh, tolerated medication. Yeah. Um by itself is not, um, it's not a bad choice. There is a theoretically... Um, Concern that if you increase the doses quite rapidly, you get an, um, a reflex tachycardia or an increase in, in heart rate, basically. Um, that might also lead to an increase in contractility. So I usually avoid that, and it's also um, fairly pungent for the patient. Great. All right. And if you're going to give propofol, which you stay away from, and I would too, but if someone were going to give propofol to these patients, you said you'd want to counteract the vasodilation. And so often we do that if we're giving propofol, and we're worried about that by giving phenylephrine with the propofol. In these patients, would you do vasopressin instead? Yeah, I would, I would, I would stay away from phenylephrine also during the induction. Great. Um, so you, can either, you can either start a vasopressin drip right at the beginning of the mm-hmm. case, or you can do the same thing as you do in the hypertensive crisis. A poor hypertensive crisis where you give kind of small boluses um, by effect. But as you said, I, I would, st- I mean, if you have the option um, and you have, I would probably stay away from it personally. Great. All right. And then finally, what about a post op destination for these patients? Do they all have to go to the ICU? Uh, what kind of monitoring do they need afterwards? Well, that, that, that again depends on what kind of operation you are, uh, you, know, you, are you, you do and um, how sick the patient is. We have a very low threshold to get in get them to the ICU to be honest with you. Um, and it gets a little bit even more complicated if you're doing a kind of a minor operation, say you do a hernia repair, and from a surgical point, there's no real reason for an ICU. There's no there's no much bleeding or anything like that. You might even think about saying a patient home, but a patient has um, um, 
problem with IV medications, the patient is severely debilitated, um, you might want to send him to an ICU. A surgical ICU actually might not be the best place for that patient to go um, because there's really no surgical issues. Um, some of those patients we actually do send to the medical ICU um, instead because the expertise in dealing with patients with severe pulmonary hypertension is just like much more prevalent um, and the comfort level is much higher um, oftentimes in such a unit. On the other hand, of course, if you have like a major... Um, say major abdominal vascular surgery, those patients might be benefit might benefit from getting to a cardiac surgical ICU, for instance, who see a lot of patients with pulmonary hypertension too. So it really depends on what your institution um sees um from a patient standpoint and what the patient collective for the ICU is. Um but in general I have a very low threshold of at least getting them overnight, like in a monitored bed um, for 24 hours, make sure everything is stable and uh, before sending them home. And is that uh, obviously partly because they could still have a pulmonary uh, hypertensive crisis post-op, it's not only limited to intraoperatively, and also any small changes in acid-base status or oxygenation can have major effects on these people? Yeah, as, as you know, there's a lot of things that can happen in the immediate post-operative um, phase. One of the things that comes to mind, of course, post-operatively is, is, un- is pain that is, might not be well-controlled, so that leads to a catecholamine increase, increases PVR. Hypoxia certainly is, is a concern, um, especially if they have underlying lung disease. Um, and and then coming back to, to volume status, like fluid shifts that happen um, post-operatively are really uh, important. And oftentimes it just takes um, a dedicated nurse or physician provider to recognize that this is a problem and um, realize that if this patient's hypotensive, I cannot just like increase the, the fluids and give them half a liter of fluid and everything will be fine, but to stay back and say, okay, this is something that we need to do differently than what we usually do. Fantastic. All right, Jochen, I think we covered a lot of great stuff. Any last words before we sign off? No, thank you very much for inviting me. I had a great time. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks. All right. That was fantastic. Jochen is really an expert on this stuff, and it's fantastic to have him on the show. If you have any comments, how do you handle pulmonary hypertension? Are there things you do for your patients with elevated pulmonary pressures that we didn't talk about? Uh, let us know. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave a comment, and everybody can learn from what you have to say. Also... If you need to get a hold of me, you can always email me at akrak at akrak.com. If you are a fan of the show, please take a moment and go to iTunes, leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show, even if you've already done it. If you do it again, it still helps boost the show in the searches so that people can find it if they're looking for an anesthesia podcast. Also, if you want to help support the making of the show, consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two, it does make a big difference and help support the making of the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jochen Stepan, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.